Today at Reader's Corner, Jamie Suskind, author of The Digital Republic, Our Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Not long ago, the tech industry was widely admired and the Internet was regarded as a tonic for freedom and democracy. But now we hear reports of racist algorithms, data leaks, and social media platforms festering with falsehood and hate. In his latest book, The Digital Republic, author Jamie Suskind argues that these problems are not the fault of a few bad apples at the top of the industry. They are the result of our failure to govern technology properly. Jamie Suskind is a barrister and best-selling author of The Digital Republic, The Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, which we will be discussing today, and the award-winning Future Politics Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. He has held fellowships at Cambridge and Harvard Universities, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Fast Company, Wired, and elsewhere. Jamie Suskind, all the way from London, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Jamie, let's start at the outset of your book. You introduced the reader to digital republicanism as a governance system to harness the power of technology, and you say that's opposed to market individualism, which we're certainly uh, aware of uh, here in the States, the default mechanism that has shaped uh, the modern tech industry. Uh, maybe you can help us uh, tell us more about digital technology and its foundations. So what my book is trying to do is offer a philosophy, a kind of guide to how we govern technology and why we govern technology. And one of the reasons I think we get into a bit of a muddle on both sides of the Atlantic, whenever some new technology comes along or some new scandal happens, is that we don't have a great deal of clarity about what our purposes are, what we're trying to achieve with digital technology and what we're trying to achieve when we govern it. And so my book is about how we can make wise laws, wise institutions, wise rules and standards that will bring out the best in technology and reduce the worst. Because what I diagnose in the book is that currently we're not getting the best of digital technology and we're getting a lot of the worst. We as individuals are frequently powerless in the face of vast corporate and technical forces that we can barely understand, still less control. And what I would like to see is a world in which our digital technologies make our democracy stronger, not weaker, make our freedom greater, not smaller, and increase the quality of social justice that we see around us. And that kind of thing isn't going to happen by chance, and it's not going to happen if we just leave digital technologies development purely to the industry or purely to market forces. That's not how we expect other social uh, innovations and other sectors to develop, and it's certainly not going to apply to the tech industry. The tech industry isn't special in that regard. So what the book offers is a, is a, is a, is a philosophy for governing technology better, and one which will allow, I hope, human and technological flourishing to go hand in hand. So give us your take on what has been, anyway, a borderline between online and offline and how that distinction has blurred between tech and non-tech industries. I mean, when we talk about digital technologies, we can't apparently just limit ourselves to the big four in Silicon Valley. No, and in the book, I try to step back from any particular company, any particular technology, any particular tech executive or guru and ask what's the big picture here? And at least part of that picture is that it's becoming 
increasingly clear that digital technology is not something we can shut off or log off or shut down. It is an integral part of living a meaningful life. It is there in all of our actions, our interactions, our transactions. You know, in the last century, it used to be that a computer was the size of a room and you'd walk into it and program it using tools. Then there was the new paradigm of the PC, where you had a keyboard and a screen and a mouse, which most of us, I think, are used to for most of our adult lives. A decade or so, we entered the era of the so-called glass slab. You know, your iPhones and your tablets and your smartphones. That became our principal way of interacting with digital technology. But in the future, and for our children and grandchildren, these interfaces will fade into the background, and we're going to live in a world where you have processing power and sensors and connectivity that are built into the physical world around us. And there's going to be a blurring of distinctions between the real and the virtual. And what it will mean is that the old conceptions that we are able to hold in mind between online and offline, real space and cyberspace, these are distinctions that will mean much less to our children and grandchildren. So we have to stop thinking about digital technology as a kind of separable component of modern society. As time goes on, it's absolutely integral to it. It's part of our basic infrastructure, and so we should pay very careful attention to how it develops. So let's go to an example of how digital technology recently impacted democracy. It is 2018, and former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is making an admission to Congress. Share that with us. Well, I mean, there's been a lot since then, but that that was something that struck me at the time as being particularly poignant in a way. Um, Jack Dorsey went before Congress and he essentially apologized for the fact that before uh, an American election, I I can't remember exactly which one it was, I think it was a congressional election, um, the Twitter platform had been inadvertently downgrading from the public consciousness a number of candidates who were running in that election with the almost certain effect that it will have reduced their visibility to the electorate and therefore probably negatively affected their chances of getting elected. This was not a kind of partisan or ideological move by Twitter. By all accounts, it was simply a mistake. But what it showed is that these great social media platforms that filter and refract the world's information that stand between us and each other and us and the world's knowledge, they have a great deal of power in framing how we see the world and how we see each other and indeed how we perceive elections and the politicians who stand in them. I mean, since then, there have been all kinds of other examples. Twitter is a, is a, is a good source of them. But I mean, just before the last presidential election, for instance, there was this great hoo-ha because the New York Post had published this article about Hunter Biden based on uh, materials which had been taken, I think, from his laptop, which he had deposited with a IT repair person. Now, I'm not commenting either way about the merits of this story or indeed the merits of that presidential election. But what I found interesting was that What Twitter did was it made it impossible for people to share that story on their platform. So it wasn't just that you'd be kind of punished if you did it. It was that if you posted a link to that story and then hit click, 
the tweet just wouldn't send in the same way that if your tweet was more than 280 characters, it wouldn't send. And again, the lesson I take from that is that digital technologies have this extraordinary ability to control human behavior. They put guardrails up about what we can and cannot do. You know, Twitter said, well, look, this was a story based on hacked materials and we have a policy about that. You may agree with that, you may not. But what you can't do is pretend that that is a technical or commercial decision that Twitter took. It is a political one. And in my book, I explore why it matters when powerful companies are taking essentially political decisions that they don't do so without any accountability. Yes, and I think you have another example in your book of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, a political advertising uh, snafu in 2019 where Trump put up a false Facebook ad. And in that case, I think you actually had a quote from Zuckerberg stating that private companies should not make these decisions alone, but they do. Well, they do, exactly. And, you know, I think the game is up with that sort of claim. Uh, I, I think in that particular circumstance, as I recall, the problem or the issue was that Facebook did not want to fact check or verify political advertisements, uh, whereas other platforms do do that. You know, it's a matter of choice in the United States about whether they do that. And Trump had put out an advert which was, I think, just entirely false, and it had gone reasonably viral on Facebook. And again, Zuckerberg was saying, "Well, I don't want to." I don't want to get involved. I'm not political. But of course, <laughs> allowing a political candidate to spread falsehoods is itself a political choice. And it's not a political choice that others may have taken. But what I want to emphasize to your listeners is that this isn't a book about Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey or any of the other tech giants. If you don't govern these companies properly, if you don't have appropriate rules, standards, regulations, guidelines, like you do in all other industries that have assumed social importance, lawyers, doctors, factories, nuclear industry, whatever it is, if you don't have those protections, you're going to have the same mistake being made again and again, or indeed different mistakes. But what I say is that you cannot have in a mature democracy you cannot have as your first line of defense and last line of defense simply the hope that Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk will do the right thing with the immense power at their disposal. Mm -hmm. That hope, that kind of wishful thinking, it is a state of being enthralled to powerful others over whose influence you have no control. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the kind of political argument that I make, that actually not imposing guidelines, not imposing accountability, is a political choice, and it is a choice to let others make important decisions about our lives with impunity. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Jamie Suskind. He's the author of The Digital Republic, Our Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. And the fact that we haven't imposed those rules uh, is due to some extent to what you call uh, Silicon Valley's success in defining themselves uh, I think that you call it the neutrality fallacy that, well, what are we worried about here? We're neutral. Please share your thoughts on that. Yeah. So if you cast your mind back a few years, it used to be that if you type something into Google, type a question into Google, the system will offer you autocompletes for your question. So if you type in, where can I, it will, you know, it might finish your question. Where can I? 
spill petrol in my car near here, the gas in my car, uh, or where can I find pictures of Kim Kardashian? But it had a kind of problem, which was that if you typed in something like "Why do Jews?", it would offer autocompletes that were racially unpleasant. Um, so things like "Why do Jews have big noses?" and obviously it wasn't just Jews; it was people of color, it was people of particular nationalities. Uh, it was all kinds of groups in societies were finding that when they used Google, some of the uglier the ugliest prejudices that already existed in society were being reflected back at them. Now, what was going on there? What was not going on was that Google was sitting down and thinking, "Well, we want to design an algorithm that is hateful towards people." What Google said was, "This is a neutral system, in the sense that it neutrally and faithfully reproduces questions which other people have asked in the past, and which other people have found most useful." And so, if you see unpleasant stuff, it's not because of us; it's because of other people. Now, that argument about neutrality is one that held sway for quite a long time in Silicon Valley because it seemed quite difficult to rebut. You know, people said we don't want tech companies to be prioritizing prioritizing particular visions of society over others, but in reality. Uh, it eventually became clear that that vision was flawed because to adopt a stance of neutrality is to adopt a particular and and very political attitude towards the world as it currently is. So Desmond Tutu has this line where he says, "If an elephant is standing on the tail of the mouse, the mouse is not going to thank you for saying that you are neutral." <laughs> uh, and the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel used to say that neutrality favors the oppressor. My point is this: If you design an algorithm which replicates and amplifies prejudices in society, you are doing political work, regardless of whether you describe yourself as neutral or not. It is to choose neutrality is to choose to keep the status quo in place. And the question that I've always asked, ever since my first book, is: Well, can we not imagine a society in which some of our digital technologies are engineered in a way? That actually reduces things that we regard as unjust or hateful. So, a system, for instance, that reduces the prevalence of bigoted views about Jewish people might be a better one for Google to produce. Now, for many years, the response that was given was, "Well, that's that's political. We, we don't do that. We're just scientists. We're neutral. We're objective, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Lo and behold, Google has now changed its system. It has now effectively accepted that argument, even though for years it, it said that it wouldn't. And the kind of autocorrect problems that I was describing earlier in this, I'm afraid, very long answer, no longer exist. So, or at least don't exist in the same way. So we're getting somewhere with the argument. We're getting somewhere in showing that neutrality isn't a kind of apolitical approach. Neutrality actually favours the hateful over the less hateful、mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time. But we're also getting somewhere where it shows that actually, even when tech companies take ethical decisions. The world doesn't fall in. So it seems like we've really, as users, taken for granted the fact that Silicon Valley gets to regulate itself, gets to make so many of these decisions itself as to what should or should not be、uh, in the social in social media sphere.、Um, tell us about the difference between self regulation, as you see it in the in the professions, law, medicine, 
and, and software engineering and whether or not there is any effort in our schools of engineering to address the moral issues that surround the jobs these uh, folks will be doing eventually? Yeah, it's a great question. And basically what I point to is an anomaly. So in, in other parts of society, if you do a job that can significantly impact the welfare or rights of another person, you will usually have some kind of duty or obligation placed on you by the law. So bankers have fiduciary duties towards the clients whose money they hold. Doctors have a duty of care towards their clients. Lawyers have duties, believe it or not, to act in a way that uh, is honest and shows integrity and which places the client's interest ahead of their own. In none of these cases do we just say, oh, well, they seem like good chaps. Uh, let's let them get on with it and hope that they make the right decision. And yet in the tech industry, there has been this insistence from the start that the best people to check their homework is the tech industry itself. That is to say, they want to mark their own homework. And there's been this slight intellectual sleight of hand where the tech industry has said, you know, we want self-regulation, you know, like in law or medicine. But when doctors and lawyers talk about being self-regulated, all they mean is that the industry has a say in the substance and nature of the rules that govern them. But the fact remains that if you as a doctor or a lawyer make a very serious ethical mistake or fall below a certain accepted legal standard, there are going to be real consequences for you. You might find your license to practice suspended. You might receive a very hefty fine. You might be the subject of public criticism or censure. None of that exists in the tech industry's conception of self-regulation. The tech industry's conception of self-regulation, and I'm talking here about the kind of Silicon Valley tech industry, is essentially, you know, let us get on with it. We're not only technically brilliant, we're also morally, socially, and politically wise. And frankly, I just don't buy it. I think it is weird that your local pharmacist has more professional obligations to treat you a certain way than the people who are architecting the social media platforms that touch at the very heart of our democratic fabric. It just seems to me that we've got it slightly wrong and that we're treating tech in a way that it shouldn't be treated, i.e. differently. So anyone who has used digital technology has had to scroll down a long list of conditions and agree to them if they wanted to move on. Uh, you call that the consent trap. Uh, help us understand how that plays into your argument here. Well, there's this very noble idea that's existed for a long time, which is that the best way for people to, to protect people in the context of the tech industry, how their data is used and so forth, is to give them autonomy and to give them choice and notice of what is being done to them and give them the opportunity to say yes, but also crucially the opportunity to say no. This is a highly individualist form of regulation in the sense that it, it, it tries to make individuals the primary gatekeepers of their own welfare. Uh, I think it is not just a failure, but a farce that that is the way that we govern digital technology, at least in the United States. When you walk into a building, you have confidence that that building is certified, that the people who architected and engineered it were certified you didn't sign a little form, you know, which contained blueprints of the foundations and of the design saying that you approved it. 
We don't ask individuals to consent to that sort of thing. Society places obligations on those who build buildings. And when it comes to the things that we consent to 5, 10, 20, 50 times a day, it is a joke, a kind of social scale joke, the idea that contracts and consent are any kind of an adequate mechanism for protecting us against digital technology. Most of us, the vast majority, don't read the terms and conditions. Those who do read the terms and conditions are likely to find the legalese highly difficult to understand. Those who do understand, and here we're just talking about an infinitesimal amount of people, will find that these terms are drafted in such broad fashion that they don't really benefit them. So, for instance, we may show your data to third parties. Great. And then once you assume that the individual has read, understood, and grasped the effect of these terms, you then have to ask the question, well, what if they don't like them? Are you going to renegotiate the terms and conditions of your interaction with a digital technology provider? Of course you're not. So what you effectively have is a system which does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. A good system of regulation protects the little guy against the big guy. It rebalances the power imbalance. But instead, you have a system which entrenches the power imbalance. Because not only does the digital technology company design and control the technology, but they then enshrine their own interests in legal terms and conditions, which you and I effectively have little choice but to sign if we want to use those products. So we've got this kind of baffling pretense going on every time we click yes or no, that this is somehow an appropriate or adequate mechanism of governing digital technology. It is a relic from a previous era in which it was felt that a good way to govern things was to allow people to negotiate in the commercial marketplace and hammer out terms between them. But this is a kind of fantasy version of that. In, in reality, the companies present us all with boilerplate, and we have to say yes. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Jamie Suskind, author of The Digital Republic. The book is a definitive guide to the great political question of our time. How can freedom and democracy survive in a world of powerful digital technologies? I'd like to use the remaining time dealing with the solutions that you identify. This is a very important book, and we, we can't cover all of it in the in the 30 minutes we have. But perhaps you could just uh, help our listeners understand what the sacred cow of Silicon Valley is. That would be Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. And, and then spend a few minutes sharing where do we go from here? Uh, how do we govern digital technology? Right. So what I will say to your readers is this. There are loads of books about digital technology out there, many of them absolutely brilliant and many of them cited in mine. The way that I've tried to do something differently in this book is by changing the ratio of diagnosis to cure. That is to say, most books about tech are 10 parts diagnosis. Here's what's going wrong. And then there's a kind of final chapter, which is like possible solutions. And it's all dealt with rather quickly and sometimes not with as much depth of thought as, we has, as has been applied to the critique section of the book. My book is a 50-50. So if you pick it up, you'll find that for the first half of it, you're reading about what I perceive to be going wrong in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And in the second half, I actually try to sketch out what the solutions might look like. 
that exposes you as an author, obviously, to attack because it, it gives concrete form to things that some people might perceive to be a threat to their interests or something that they disagree with. But that's what I've tried to do. I tried to set out the rules, the institutions, the standards and frameworks and the like about what a digital republic, that is to say, a well-governed country might look like in 10, 20, 30 years. And you're right, uh, we're not going to be able to get into too much of it for the remainder of this interview. But you've hinted at one aspect of it, which is social media. So, for instance, there's a large section of the book which asks about how we might better govern social media platforms. Now, in the United States, there is a, a current legal framework which doesn't exist in other places in the world, but which essentially protects platforms from being sued for the content of their that is posted on them. And it also protects them from being sued when they make moderating decisions. Um, and the reasons why that law came about are quite understandable. It happened in the late 90s, and it was perceived that if social media platforms felt that they were always going to be crushed every time some you know, idiot posted something on a platform that was defamatory, um, then they'd never get off the ground. And so Congress gave that protection to technology companies. And I think it is fair to say that in commercial terms, it's been a colossal success. The internet would look very, very different today. And particularly the American internet industry would look very, very different had it not been in place. But nowadays, there is a, a different issue, and, and it's this. Whereas in the old days, it was really important to protect these platforms, now we kind of need protecting against them, particularly the very large and powerful ones, which is why you see in Europe and the United Kingdom efforts to place certain duties and obligations on social media platforms to use the immense powers at their disposal to make society a little better, to make democracy a little stronger, to reduce the flow of dangerous and violent and predatory material around the algorithmic byways of these platforms. And I'm afraid to say, and I'm not just being biased here, but I'm afraid to say that I think that Europe and the UK are far ahead of the US when it comes to this. And that may partly be, I think, in fact, it is largely as a result of a perception that the First Amendment makes it almost impossible for the federal government or anyone else to impose serious rules about what may or may not be done online by social media platforms. Now, I know that legal scholars of the First Amendment actually disagree about whether the current prevailing orthodoxy is the correct one. But it does seem to me that if it is correct or is held to be correct, then there is a very real question about whether the First Amendment in the U.S. is able to do what the, the framers of the U.S. Constitution intended that provision to do and whether it is adequate to protect and nurture a system of free expression in the United States. Because although folks think that the First Amendment makes speech freer in the U.S., in the context of social media, what it actually does is it gives immense power to private corporations to control and then sometimes even stifle the existence of free speech in America. Whereas a proper system of regulation of social media would prevent platforms from doing that. It would prevent them from crushing groups that they regarded as undesirable, but which were actually democratically legitimate. Mm -hmm. It would 
require them only to reduce forms of speech or the prevalence of forms of speech that were themselves illegal, things like terrorist or paedophile materials and so forth. And what I do in the book is I outline a system of social media governance, you know, which involves setting particular systemic standards for them, not having the government ever intervene in individual decisions, like you, you shouldn't have blocked that person or you shouldn't have promoted that content, but having to be persuaded at, at regular intervals, maybe every year or two, that a platform is in fact putting in place adequate systems for the meeting of certain goals, whether they are let's say, the reduction of harmful content aimed at children or the reduction of foreign interference in democratic processes. And crucially, I argue for a system that imposes significantly more responsibilities on larger and riskier platforms than on smaller ones. So if you're, if you're a little startup, you should have very little regulation at all. But if you are a behemoth, you should expect some responsibilities to come with that power. So I know that uh, Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota has written a, a book. It's quite a tome on antitrust. And uh, you mentioned antitrust in your book and you claim it needs a reboot. But it raises a question for me as to who's listening and who's acting. Um, do you know of any effort in Congress or elsewhere on this side of the Atlantic uh, to take seriously this digital republicanism you're talking about? Again, not the Republican Party we're talking about, but digital republicanism broadly defined. Um, any progress? Yes, it is certainly much higher on the political agenda than it was, let's say, six years ago. And that's a relatively short space of time. But, you know, when I started writing my first book in 2018, uh, sorry, I started writing it in 2016, and, and, I was, and I was in the US at that time. And I was amazed by the lack of interest and lack of education in many very high and senior parts of the yeah. US administration in the kinds of issues that I'm now describing. You know, a senior politician could not just admit but could boast, could boast of their technological illiteracy, and that would be seen as a strength rather than as a weakness. I believe those days are gone. I do believe that digital technology is rising to the top of the political agenda. Unfortunately, and this is particularly a problem in the US, it is rather being hijacked by both sides to pursue their own partisan agendas. So, for instance, you know, the right will tell you that big tech censors them, whereas the left will say that big tech is the reason that the far right has risen in strength and solidarity in the United States. This has ceased to be an argument, therefore, about the regulation of technology, and it's basically just a repetition of other culture war and political war arguments about who should be in power and who's right and who's wrong. And frankly, it's all a little tiresome. Uh, again, in Europe, I think you will see slightly more bipartisan efforts to think carefully about the use of data, about the use of algorithms, about the use of social media, there's an AI act that's going through the European Parliament just now, which is to do with high-risk algorithmic applications. Th there are people in the US, in, in DC, who are thinking seriously about the governance of social media platforms. There have been quite a lot of them for a while now. Um, the question is whether it can get done. And in part, that's a matter of how high it is up on the presidential agenda. And we can well understand why the current president doesn't see it as his immediate priority, even though he does actually he has and he has made several 
uh, announcements, including what I thought was a somewhat anemic digital bill of rights proposal about this stuff. But what I think that shows is that, you know, it's now cool and relevant for politicians to be talking about it. But the truth is, the honest truth is that when it comes to the governance of digital technology, the current paralysis that is besetting the US political system is definitely holding it back. And so you're, you're seeing in Europe and in China, uh, more mature approaches to the governance of digital technology. When I say mature, I definitely am not endorsing the Chinese approach. What I'm saying is they have an approach and they're doubling down on it. Likewise, in Europe, the US, I think, is kind of stuck in the 90s. And I, I'll be interested to see whether in the next decade that position can change. Well, Jamie, you have provided us uh, with a very important contribution to this discussion of the future of digital technology. Uh, we didn't get near uh, everything in your book, but uh, we certainly have benefited from how you've been able to sum this up for us in this brief period. I want to thank you for joining us today at Reader's Corner and especially thank you for writing The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.